the hypnorotomachia is the Pink Floyd of the of the Renaissance. You know, as one of my friends once put it, the alchemists were medieval heads. Speak the charm of make charm of make charm. It's really time to start understanding how this text works as a magical masterpiece of art. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. Welcome back to the Arnamancy Podcast. This is Eric Arneson, and today I am here with Ted Hand, a public school teacher and independent scholar of Renaissance magic. Uh, for the last year and a half about, Ted's been working on some uh, research around the Hypnorotomachia polyphili, and I have invited him to come on and talk about some of this fascinating stuff he's been digging up. If you're curious about the Hypnorotomachia polyphili, I would encourage you to go back to episode, I think, probably 25 or 26, which is an introduction to this uh, very peculiar book, and you're probably going to want to listen to that before you listen to this. Hi, Ted. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, it's great to be here. This book, this uh, probably like the most bizarre incunabulum that that has managed to survive. Like, how did you originally come across it, and what drew your attention to it? Oh gosh, that's a great question. So the first time I uh, heard about the Hypnorotomachia polyphily, way back when I was a kid reading uh, Jan Kuliano's um, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance. Mm, yeah, and uh, you know, there's just a little mention of that in there because it uh, it makes sense in terms of Culiano's project talking about the Renaissance culture of memory and uh, the sort of um, you know the culture of like imagination and and the way that magic was dealing with the imagination in a way that uh, you know changes when the the Protestant culture comes in and wants to sort of like you know ban the image. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Hypnorotomachia is seen as this like emblematic text of that like renaissance way of thinking that kind of got like stamped out with the uh you know the emergence of the the protestant revolution the scientific revolution um you know that that kind of iconoclasm of uh, modernity and uh yeah i guess it's you know, hard to... my... right well it's um it it really it was published just what like 10 15 years before um martin luther nailed his theses Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. exactly. So it's like this masterpiece of that period and culture that ended, you know, at a certain point not long after. And uh, so, you know, I think Juliano is right to look at it as this this great example, you know, of, of this like kind of high point in uh, in a sort of what we might call a way of magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where the interest as like an esotericist comes in. You know, how is this text something that, you know, represents the kind of like dream technology of the Renaissance or, you know, however you might put that, right? And uh, you've got the art of memory and uh, I've got great study to uh, to support this uh, connection um, that I'll be talking about. And you've got uh, all of these other recognizable Renaissance traditions coming into it. Uh, so... I believe that we can learn so much about how to understand the text as an esoteric uh, um, tool uh, if we can put it in the context of all these Renaissance practices of reading and the ways that it was used by uh, by professionals as sort of a tool for 
thinking and learning creatively, but in within the bounds of these professional disciplinary boundaries for Renaissance, what they call service professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Culliano talks about um, sort of like the mode of thought of uh, of like pre-Protestant Renaissance stuff, where thinking tended to be imaginal and um, and and fantastical. So so people didn't necessarily think in words as much as they thought in images. And something like the Hypnodomachia Polyphili, where it has not only its enormous collection of woodcuts, but also this really uh, heavily descriptive text that almost kind of like paints a picture in your mind as you're reading it. So it really is kind of a... It does... Uh, it, 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 I, I think I see where you're coming from. That sounds like a really fascinating way to approach it. So like, you know... We often approach Renaissance love philosophy or Renaissance, the love aspect of Renaissance magic. You know, what is it that allows the, the magician to kind of pull on the strings of the cosmos with, with his, his magic? Um, and uh, this is a piece of art. You know, this is a novel. This is a series of woodcuts, right? Um, this is a dream narrative. Um, and this is an allegory, right? It's not philosophy. Right. Uh, so, so this is a way to sort of like, you know, test out your theories about um, about Renaissance magic and, and love theory and eroticism and, and uh, you know, all this great stuff or to, you know, test out uh, the art of memory to see how it played out in actual use, you know, um, to see how people were actually like working with the art of memory in, in a work of art and, so it's like this marvelous magical masterpiece of, of a certain kind of art that, that we don't really don't make anymore. Like the culture, you know, modern culture doesn't really allow for the possibility of the activity of the imagination that uh, these philosophers and theorists and game players and novelists and creative types, you know, took it for granted. Um, so if you want to recover that mentality of, um, of Renaissance magic, this book is just one of the best books to go read. Um, and uh, as opposed to, you know, most of the documents that we have are like these philosophical documents. Like if you're trying to understand Giordano Bruno or Marsilio Ficino or whatever, like what's going on with um, the magical use of Lily and Wheels and Bruno or, uh, you know, Love Theory and, and, and both of those guys. I, I just think the Hypnerotomachy is a, you know, wonderful place to look. And oh, yeah. I'm going to be comparing it with another Renaissance text or early modern text that is full of imagery and also a text to be played with, which is the talent of Fugians, um, and my conference paper. Did we mention we're talking about a conference paper yet? Uh, um, I think we were, I, I meant to, but yeah, we're talking about a conference paper. Okay. So the, uh, the Atalanta, <laughs> yeah. Atalanta Fugians. Okay. Atalanta Fugians. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Michael Meyer. It's a 1617 alchemical text. It's a multimedia text. So you got emblems, you got poems, you got discourses on the the kind of chemical symbolism, uh, which uses a lot of Greek mythology, and the the whole text is a is a is an allegory based on the a talent of fleeing, um, which is the title. You know, Fugains means fleeing. Mm-hmm. So uh, so this text is is um, an allegory of the alchemical process of like reflux distillation, using the lines of a fugue moving up and down and sort of playing with each other like the way that we think about voice leading in the early 1600s um although the the pieces of music that are in there are not actual fugues so you got the poem you got the emblem you got the fugue you listen to the music you look at the emblem you read the poem 
and you just sort of like take delight in the way that uh, all of these uh, discourses are being woven together and uh, you learn about alchemy that way. And so it's a teaching tool, but now, it's also something that you play with. Uh, when you say that the uh, Atalanta Fugians contains um, a fugue or, or music, it, it actually has notes in there, so you're kind of supposed to play this on an instrument and do that sort of like you stop reading the book and go play some music? Yeah, yeah so you could potentially, um, you know, and, and the you have to remember that, you know, the Renaissance, the, the, the expected audience for this book is going to be well-trained in music, Um because that's something just sort of every educated person, you know, should know. So they would be able to sing these canons. And so, yeah, you do have these, these actual, you can go look at the book and see that there's, um, there, there's musical notation in there um, for the so-called fugues, but they're actually more like canons. And the exciting thing is that, you know, not only does Jocelyn Godwin, the musicologist and, and sort of, you know, elder statesman of esoteric publishing, um, you know, take a strong interest in, in both of these texts. But the Atalanta has recently been the subject of a huge project of musicologists coming together with alchemy scholars. And uh, there's going to be a digital edition coming out this fall. Wow. Uh, so we're super stoked on that. Um, Tara Numidal is heading the project and, and uh, uh, Donna Bialik. Uh, there's a paper by her that I'll mention when I get to the, uh, the uh, reading that I have on my to-do list. So we're super stoked to have this great study. They've learned a bunch of things about the uh, the canons. Um, for example, that uh, they were actually lifted from another source. So he didn't like compose these canons. Um, I think he may have refigured them somewhat to fit them into his you know context. But uh, he actually like you know stole a bunch of the material from somewhere else. So it's not like we can't really look at them as original compositions in a certain way. Right. So uh, right. that would uh, rule out certain approaches to like, you know, getting really like capitalistic about it and over interpreting the compositional choices that he's, uh, he's making. Um, yeah. That's interesting. The Atalanta Fugians was written by Michael Meyer and he was a German or Austrian alchemist kind of in the, in the 1600s. Yeah, thereabouts, um, early 17th century. Okay. And uh, he, he died not long after. Uh, one of my favorite uh, alchemy bits from Terence McKenna is that he once speculated that uh, Michael Meyer was was run through in an alley by Rene Descartes, who was part of the uh, invading <laughs> army when Michael Meyer disappeared. Oh. Um, <laughs> was he? One of my he? favorite historical what-ifs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, uh, Michael Myers' um, sort of imaginal alchemical view of the world would have been so starkly in contrast with uh, with Descartes. I mean, Descartes was so so anti imagination that was wasn't he something like he was terrified of being associated with the Rosicrucians because they were just filled with like magical flights of fancy and stuff. That, yeah, and we can still understand. I mean, especially the analytical branch of philosophy. You know, contemporary philosophy is still iconoclastic and still sort of rejects the, you know, imaginal view of the world, which, you know, here in the occult, we, you know, are still appreciative of in a certain way. Right. Um, you know, there is an outmoded mentality that we're sympathetic with or something that we're actively using to do magic. If you happen to be the kind of practitioner that approaches this stuff, you know, looking for uh, tips on your own practice. So, uh, <laughs> um, 
this stuff, meaning the research on esotericism. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. So let's, uh, let's get into your research a little bit. Um, so you basically, so after, uh, so the hypnodomachia polyphile, like one of the things that's, um, that's really striking about it is all of this, like, uh, architectural imagery that it kind of opens with. Like it has all of these descriptions of these like vast palaces and gardens and landscaping and uh, obelisks and towers and castles and all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, and I guess for me, and, and it's probably just because the book sort of starts that way, it, it always makes the Hypnodomachia feel to me like a book of architecture almost. That circles us back to my conference paper and the article that uh, I've been um, struggling to write for years and years, which is uh, actually for an architectural theory journal. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it's sort of the first text of modern architectural theory in a certain way. And, um, you know, I'm really interested in the kind of platonic and neoplatonic theory of beauty that underlies um, the reason why polyphilo in this dream space is being pulled around um, sort of on the wings of desire mm-hmm. right and when he looks at these um when he looks at these buildings he is uh um you know kind of pulled by their beauty and we get explanations of how that all works you know it's a great practical application of that um that renaissance aesthetics uh coming from the neoplatonic tradition of you know philosophizing about beauty uh, which helps us to see how, um, once again, the philosophy of love was enacted in a practical form that um, that these service professionals, you know, had had reason to make use of, and uh, and so you know they needed they needed to understand the uh, the philosophy, and they had a you know a book like this that they could play with. It was just full of um, all kinds of commonplace you know sayings that that come from those uh, those philosophical traditions. But then you made the jump from the Hypnodomachia to the Adelantifugians. So, so somehow, so my familiar, my, I am not very familiar with Adelantifugian stuff. Like I know some of the, um, you know, there's a lot of famous artwork that came out of that book. So anybody who's ever looked at pictures of alchemy on the internet has, has already seen Adelantifugians artwork without really knowing it probably. But, um, Oh, absolutely. Is there an is there an architectural theme in that book as well? And if so, how is it tied into the alchemy story? Yeah, so that's a great question. And um, I'll be talking about in my to read list, um, there has actually been some work done, for example, by Georgi Isonyi um, on, uh, let's see, quote, architectural symbolism and fantasy landscapes and alchemical and occult discourses. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes from that awesome volume emblems and alchemy by Adams and Linden. So um, yeah, there's, there's lots of cool like architectural stuff going on in the background of the talent of Fugians. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't gone over a, a lot of work on that yet. Um, and so I'm not quite sure how to read that. And we'd have to look to, you know, what's going on in Renaissance uh, discourse, you know, the, uh, the evolution of the use of perspective would be one example um, but yeah, it's sort of the artist kind of shows off with all this cool architecture in the background. Um, and uh, so it's it's an interesting question. And architecture is similar to hypnorotomachia, something that you would need to understand the the early modern kind of state of the art in order to understand what's being, um, you know, symbolized and played with in the Atalanta Fugians. So architecture connects both of these texts and play connects both of these texts, which is where I got the idea for the article in the conference paper to kind of focus on play. 
and uh, you know plays a great way to set um, set this book in the context of uh, of esotericism, but it also in the context of the Renaissance intellectual traditions that you know there's a lot that we can learn about how they're all they're all sort of feeding into it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about this concept of uh, of play in the texts? Like, what are you um, what are you referencing in particular? So the idea in both of these texts and, um, you know, in, in these dissertations on the hypnorotomachia, I'll talk about um, uh, a little bit more about the, you know, the evidence that, that I'm using to support this idea. Um, there are texts that are meant to be played with. And if you're a professional um, in these, you know, certain industries um, in the Renaissance, um, you need to learn the kind of like intellectual material and this book is sort of a delightful way to practice with the language of your, you know, your various disciplines. Um, and so the, we know a lot from the practices of readers who annotated the book about how they were going to it and sort of using it. Uh, what they would write in the margins, you know, shows us what they were thinking about, what they were coming to the text for, and what they were getting out of it. So sort of we have evidence about how these people were playing with the text. And hmm. um, I'm just going to tease this, but there was an alchemist who had a copy and wrote a bunch of notes in the margin. And that's uh, the subject of a chapter in one of these dissertations that I'll mention. And so that's another justification for looking at uh, Atalanta Fugians, right? Because uh, if uh, Hypnerotomachia was used by an alchemist, well, we can't help but uh, look at it in an alchemical context now, can we? No, we definitely can't. I mean, we know that it was looked at in an alchemical context because of its um, influence on uh, Johann Valentin André and when he wrote mm. the uh, the chemical wedding of uh, Christian Rosenkreutz. Um, at least that's Godwin. Well, it's not Godwin's theory. It's that the other scholar, Preaky, I think, who was like, mm. oh, yeah, the the chemical wedding never would have been written without the hypnerotomachia. Um, right. Which means that, you know, and, and the, the chemical wedding of, of uh, Christian Rosenkreutz has some really heavy alchemical themes uh, that are probably like entirely allegorical and not very uh, uh, practical probably, but seeing that sort of influence show up or that sort of like parallel show up in a, in a more serious alchemical text, that's really, that's actually really cool. And I mean, Adelanto Fugians might be the, I mean, it, it's it's among the most famous alchemical texts, I would say, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a Rosicrucian imagery collection par excellence, right? Michael Meyer oh, yeah. um, sort of fancied himself a Rosicrucian, right? He was uh, he was obsessed with the Rosicrucian tradition and uh, mm-hmm. you know tried to make himself worthy of it by uh, creating this amazing Rosicrucian artwork. Um, so yeah, so like, does the Rosicrucian tradition really represent a survival of this Renaissance culture of images? You know, going back to the Culliano thesis about eros and magic in the Renaissance. Um, you know, so we can kind of like trace through Hypnerotomachia, through Italanta Fugians into the, the Rosicrucian tradition. Um, God, that all that lovely be... stuff that's collected in the Christian Rosenkreuz anthology, right? If we want to understand the mentality that goes behind how these images work as visual art forms. Uh, but visual art forms that you know you play with as an esotericist, you gaze at these things and stuff's going to happen, right? Um, yeah. So that is just that just makes interesting thoughts enter my head. Like a lot of the, a lot of the Rosicrucian tradition and sort of how it because it, it it came out of you know Protestant Europe, right? It was sort of 
newly Protestant. It sprung up like just before the Thirty Years' War. Um, and I guess in my head, like sort of slotting that into history somehow, where you have this sort of like clinging to an older mode of thought while still embracing sort of this new form of religion and mixing them together. I, you know, I, I always want things to fit into such nice boxes and they never do. (laughs) Check it out. Okay. So you and I have crossed swords uh, before on the question of like the history of Freemasonry. Right. And yeah, uh, you know, this whole question of like, does it represent like a, you know, a modern um, sort of reaction or does it represent a survival of a, a, you know, a pre-modern, you know, form of thought. And Mm -hmm. I think a great, a great historical study to look at in theory book is uh, Christopher McIntosh. Um, what, what was this book about uh, Freemasonry and the Enlightenment? And, you know, there's this oh, concept yeah. in there of uh, counter-enlightenment, right? Where, like, you know, in the Rosicrucians, we're seeing a reaction to the iconoclasm of images that Culliano laments in Eros and Magic, right? Mm-hmm. And also that, you know, like, I mentioned Terrence McKenna and the Descartes killing Michael Meyer thing. Uh, you know, Francis Yates' uh, Rosicrucian Enlightenment um, is the idea, you know, of this sort of like last gasp of the, um, you know, the magical worldview trying to create this, uh, this ideal state. Right. And, uh, you know, she's, she's sort of looking at the, 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 the aftermath of, of the kind of death of that, uh, that culture that was literally sort of like, uh, you know, actually like literally beaten in a, in a war, <laughs> but right. at the same time, like beaten in the, <laughs> You know the war of uh, words that the Protestant Revolution represents, but I mean a whole lot of art got destroyed, a whole lot of people got killed uh, in those wars of religion in the next uh, hundred years, right? So, um, you know, we we actually do see a whole lot of literal violence being done to these cultures of uh, of the imagination, as well as uh, mm-hmm. you know, intellectual violence in the process of Enlightenment and the process of early modern, leading to scientific revolution. However, you want to put that. Um, so yeah, so like Macintosh's work would be a great way to. You know, situate this question, um, this sort of dialectics of, uh, you know, imagery and iconoclasm, or however you want to put that, um, that's happening in the process of becoming modern. And, you know, I mean, if you're going to situate it in terms of like theory of esotericism, like Antoine Favre and Wouter Hanegraaff and those guys, right? Um, don't they talk about esotericism as forbidden knowledge, right? Right. Or the even knowledge rejected of the knowledge. Imagination. Yeah. You know, the yeah. knowledge of imaginal magic, the knowledge of image magic is you know perfectly functional knowledge that you know we as esotericists recognize and, and have to like accept and work with um however we have a relationship to the text vis-a-vis our own modernity um and so um you, you know like this image magic that is disallowed um resurfaces like what was it gershom Scholem said about the kabbalah as like a gnostic uh um, sort of like revenge of uh, Gnosticism repressed against its creator, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that I love that. <laughs> it's like an application of Freudian theory to the history of esotericism and the reception of tradition and in, in all that. So yeah, I mean, there's something going on there. There's something going on with modernity and the sort of imagistic mentality in uh, in dialectic and. Um, it's going to resurface as like a backlash and there's going to be a backlash against the backlash. And uh, I think that that's a great way of talking about it. Is it sort of the main ongoing fight of the last, what, 600 years at this point is, um, uh, modern thought versus old style imaginal thought or, or imagery versus words or the rational mind versus the, 
imaginal mind like is this this is just something that we're never gonna get over is it yeah you know Egil Asprim won the uh, the Max Weber prize with his wonderful study of disenchantment and uh, you know that's one of the kind of like hot current uh, you know theory reads in, in western esoteric studies uh, that I would recommend everybody check out you know if you want to learn more about this uh, you know this problem of disenchantment and I think that um Basically, scholarship is coming around to the idea that, like, we kind of got disenchantment wrong. Like, if you're trying to express what happened in disenchantment in terms of, like, the way that the the victor thinks about things, you know, if you're going mm-hmm. to express, you know, a theory of disenchantment in scientific terms, you're going to miss out on all of that repressed material, you know, the the sort of forbidden knowledge of esotericism, because scientism can't understand that knowledge. Right. Right. That makes sense. Um, and that sort of puts uh, Adelante Fugians in a really interesting spot in history because uh, it's it's in the 17th century. Um, it must have been printed, you know, during the Thirty Years' War. But, uh, but scientism was really kind of getting its, its, its feet its feet dug in in that century that was kind of like that was the century of Descartes and the century of uh, Hobbes and um, like the Royal Society and whatever the French equivalent of that was I can never remember the name Um, but like that's when science really that's like the scientific revolution really begun that began that century yeah we just see these new emphases on rationalism and empiricism and you know whatever other isms you want to group into this that um in a sort of extreme form you know become logical positivism or scientism or you know however you want to put that in a in a pejorative way that highlights the 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 blind spots and the the negative aspects of that way of thinking yeah i mean both Um, both uh, something there's something lost in the process yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think that both ways of thinking have some pretty big blind spots and you kind of have to you kind of have to be able to switch between them or at least accept both of them. And if, if you really want to uh, take advantage of everything that there is that's out there. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting century because you still have even, um, you know, cause like Robert flood uh, was publishing in the 1660s and even in the um, like early Royal society, you had like alchemists and magicians and stuff. Uh, so can you talk to us? Uh, so tell. Uh, let's get a can, little bit. I can talk about Flood for a minute here in this context. So Ooh, I'm glad yeah. you brought him up. Uh, you know, because there's a lot of discussion of Flood in the history of science literature. Like if you look at Alan Debus, um, you know, Flood was an important uh, place to look at. You know, a certain branch of the alchemical tradition and the way that it, um, the way that it was encountering the newly forming rationalistic scientific traditions, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so when you read Flood's arguments, which is a, a great study in the history of science, um, great place to go if you want to do a dissertation on the history of science and magic uh, would be to work on Robert Flood and his polemics, uh, you know, um, his argument with Kepler uh, or whoever, right? Um, and, uh, you know, Flood, at the same time that he's defending a lot of stuff that doesn't look great from our contemporary scientific, you know, point of view. Um, and it doesn't always like make rational sense to us. Like he was defending that Renaissance culture of images that Kuliano is talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can, you can go and see, you know, this sort of like brilliant philosopher of his, of his time, uh, you know, making a defense in terms of this, 
there are things that we we can learn about the way that modernity was working by the way that he saw it as an enemy, right? For example, right? And um, you know, Flood's work is absolutely just another highlight. You know, another series of masterpieces of that alchemical emblematic worldview. And um, one of the best like art historian kind of readings that you can do is to go read uh, Ursula Zulakowska, uh, who who published on uh, sort of like light metaphysics and optics and alchemy. And, uh, you know, she's got some great studies of uh, Flood and Michael Meyer and, you know, guys like that. Um, I'll just tease her work right now. Uh, and mm -hmm. she's another source that I like might consider including in the article or might consider including in the conference paper. So I think it was either, um, it was either Jocelyn Godwin or um, Francis Yates who referred to Flood as the last Renaissance man. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could talk about Athanasius Kircher, uh, in that connection too. Um, yeah. The flood might be, might be more of a Renaissance man world. Kircher is more of a, uh, you know, scientific thinker. Um, but Kircher is still pretty wacky. Um, still pretty, uh, Oh yeah. Pretty Kircher, rural, right? he was pretty into, uh, architecture as well, wasn't he? I have, I've got, um, cause he, he's, he did a bunch of, uh, architectural work. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, once again, great place to go look. And, you know, so, I mean, architecture is all part of this, uh, you know, this, it, it's going to, it's going to be tied up with, the, you know, the music and mathematics of, of the Renaissance kind of intellectual um, education, right, where you have to understand about um, proportion. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the kind of math behind music is also the math behind architecture, right? Architectural sort of like music playing out in space. Um, and you know the the Renaissance mentality held that like knowledge of music helps you in all these other intellectual areas, right? At all, it's all sort of of a piece. Right. It's part of the uh, seven liberal liberal arts and sciences. Um, right. Okay. So now, but also like the architecture of the time uh, kind of had a language of its own, right? So different different styles of architecture, like different orders of architecture, different architectural features would all have. Um, kind of like their own meaning or their own, their own sort of, uh, uh, I guess, ima imaginal meaning, right? Like they would, they would carry messages with them. And this is something that I don't know that at least Americans today probably don't get a whole lot of exposure to since most of our architecture tends to be pretty bland. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, like different types of columns might represent, might, uh, you know, portray, that this is a library or a school or a church or, or something of that nature where you'd have, uh, th there would just be like different elements that you'd bring into the architecture that would mean things. Um, yeah. That's, that's another area that I'm, I'm hoping to do more research into and I didn't include it in our notes for the day, uh, which I guess the viewer can, uh, um, refer to, uh, but, uh, once we post it, but, um, but there is some great work on hypnorotomachia and Renaissance architectural theory um, one of the theories about its art authorship, of course, that's still in dispute is uh, whether or not uh, it was written by Alberti, uh, who was one of the great architectural thinkers of the day. And uh, it seems like um, opinion has, has shifted to, to confirm the Colonna theory, right? That Fres Francesco Colonna must have written it. We have the uh, acrostic with his name in there, for example, yeah. <laughs> where, um, where Colonna is identified with Polyphilo. Uh, so, you know, it seems pretty clear that this, uh, you know, this Dominican wrote it, but, um, but 
one scholar was convinced that it must be Alberti because it includes all of this legit architectural knowledge. Yeah, there's legit architectural no- architectural knowledge, but then also, you know, um, Godwin points out that sometimes the architecture doesn't match or the measurements are kind of screwed up. Um, right, right, and, and yeah. it's sort of also like impossible to build. Yeah. Right? Like and- these things too big and if you take into account gravity or whatever like it's not gonna i would love to see a digital edition of this text you know yeah used autocad or whatever to like digitally rep- if there's any like computer geeks listening to this who want a project for like visualization you know like try to like actually render what these uh these impossible architectures would look like wouldn't that be fun yeah i thought i read on the wikipedia page for the hypnotomachia that somebody did that so I, I think that something might exist out there that already does that, and we should. Oh, let's dig this up and check it we out. We have got to hunt yeah. that down. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's going to be a that's going to be a slide in my slideshow for sure. Yeah, I guess another thing about um, some of the architectural stuff in the Hypnodomachia, um, sometimes it just kind of reads like a catalog where it's kind of like, oh, here's a list of architectural terms, and I'm just going to say that there were these things and these things and these things, and it just sort of has this whole list of it. And you're kind of like, all right. I mean, I know those are words, but this isn't necessarily giving me a really good picture of what's happening. You're just telling me that these, you know, elements are present. So it could be, it could also be, you know, I mean, Dominicans had great libraries at the time. I mean, maybe um, Colonna got his hands on some architecture books. (laughs) So one, you know, metaphor I'm going to use right now that might be a little bit low and vulgar is the the bathroom reader right have you ever uh-huh. had one of those big bricks of a bathroom reader oh yeah i used to have one of those uh, bathroom readers that was just full of condensed summaries of like world literature right so uh-huh. you know a whole bunch of a whole bunch of important books i know a little bit about because i you know used to just sort of thumb through it at random and pick up little bits of information and that might be a way to compare um the way that renaissance readers were using this text you know, so it would just be this delightful novel to read, but then you're going to be challenged with all of this heady architectural theory stuff. And, you know, maybe you're going to write a note in the margin to go look this thing up or look that thing up, right? Oh, so yeah. it'll be a way just like kind of, you know, idly passing the time reading for pleasure uh, and at the same time working on your professional knowledge. So it's almost kind of like, um, it'd be like a binge watching a documentary series today where you might take notes of the stuff that you're going to look up later, but you're just sort of like watching for enjoyment at the moment. Yeah. It's edutainment. Yeah. It's, uh, and we could talk about the gamification of, um, of learning, right. Or play and learning as, you know, as a topic. And you know what, and uh, I'm a teacher, right. I just went through grad school to be a, uh, you know, teaching credential candidate, and um, hey, congratulations! There's a lot of exciting stuff happening with play and learning in um, the educational theory, right? We're learning that um, you know, play is a great way to get people engaged, and so like games and learning is is a very exciting topic. And so, you know, one one thing that I might do a, a master's on would be to go do a, an education theory um, degree and uh, look at Renaissance uh, learning. Uh, in, in the context of, of contemporary educational theory. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from these texts and a lot that we can learn from just figuring out how to model and, and just understand how these texts work as learning tools that you play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were talking earlier about um, we have a copy of the Hypnodomachia that was owned by an alchemist and we have some of his notes in the margins. Yeah, and that's all I'm going to say about that because I haven't really dove down too much deeper into that rabbit hole. I'm not quite prepared to talk about that yet, but that's you know one of my projects for 
um, for the conference paper is to go research that some more and understand what was going on with this alchemist, you know, what was he using it for? And, you know, I mean, the, like the general thesis, it fits into this idea that, you know, here's a, a service professional, right, who has this, um, you know, this chemical knowledge, but then also like this, like, you know, necessity for the gift of gab and talking about it. Um, that were uh, part of his professional skill set. And so he's reading this book in order to like improve his professional skill set by practicing with, um, with kind of applied practical uses of the theory, um, you know, figuring out why this guy is blown away by this or that piece of architecture. Yeah, that would be, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you learned about that. Um, I'm kind of thinking about, uh, I think a lot of people today don't necessarily associate play with learning very much. So the concept of sort of like sitting down at the book, like the Hypnodomachia and kind of like wandering through it and just letting the images be sort of created and built in your mind and just having, just sort of like enjoying the imaginal space. Um, it, it must seem, I would guess it to a lot of people, it seems like a really alien sort of concept, like a, a very foreign right. way to approach a book. So I think here's a good place to start looking at at my research. And um, at the top of the list that I just emailed you, uh, we have a, a thesis from 2014 by a, a, a James Charles Russell. Mm-hmm. And uh, the title of the dissertation is Many Other Things Worthy of Knowledge and Memory, The Hypnerotomachia Polyphilia and Its Annotators, 1499 to 1700. Ooh. So this is, you know, two centuries of the use of this book by readers. And I lifted a quote that I'm going to read from the abstract where he says, I have reframed the HP as a, quote, humanistic activity book, unquote, which in which readers cultivated their faculty of ingenio, which means sort of like the creative genius, Mm -hmm. uh, through through ludic engagement with the text. And so by ludic engagement, what do we mean is playing with the text. And so, yeah, so, um, so this is one of my, you know, kind of, uh, key gears and the argument that you know got me thinking about uh, play and uh, both of these texts. Uh, so now, turning quickly to my comparison with uh, Talent of Fugains for a moment uh, before we get back to the Neuron Machia, um, Michael Meyer said, You know, you're going to read this book, contemplate it, look at the image, listen to the music, right? Think about it and contemplate, right? And so, this is the, the ludic engagement that's happening in, in A Talent of Fugains. You listen to the music, you're playing around. You're looking at the play of voices, the counterpoint of voices in music theory terms, right? And you're looking at the play of Greek mythology being used in conjunction with alchemical symbolism, rereading alchemical symbolism. It's a, it's a hermeneutical play, right? There's all of these forms of play that are happening. It makes me think so much of like the experience of uh, getting a new LP, getting a new uh, vinyl record when you're young and sitting down to listen to it and staring at the artwork on the cover and reading the lyrics on the inside and having sort of like this multimedia experience that, you know, it's, it's still just one thing you got, but there's like all this stuff going on and this whole experience you get to have. Um, Yeah. So if you want to understand, like if you are a historian of religion, you know, from the 30th century, trying to understand a kid in the 20th century, smoking weed and listening to Pink Floyd and his headphones on, you know, on his mm -hmm. vinyl record player, you have to understand a lot about the ritual context in which this practice of listening takes place, right? Oh, and yeah. In the same way, you have to understand all of these contexts in which the reading and play with the hypnerotomachy is happening. So, yeah, I really like that example of, like, listening to an LP and just tripping out on it, you know? Oh, yeah. 
because the way that you trip out on it like helps you form your identity it helps you think about like when i listen to dark side of the moon i'm thinking about my future i'm thinking about where i've come right i'm thinking about my like place in the world and you know it helps you to like formulate who you are as like a, a magical agent let's say oh yeah and it also it it foments that rebellion you know i mean especially if they're listening if they're reading the hypnobachia 120 years later and they're drinking their laudanum and looking at the pictures i mean i assume they were probably drinking laudanum by then uh you know i mean they they were totally also sort of having this like active rebellion while they were doing it it's totally a it the hypnorotomachia is the pink floyd of the of the renaissance <laughs> right i mean it's so transgressive right and um you know as one of my friends once put it the alchemists were medieval heads oh right? yeah um, for sure it, whether or not they knew how to like extract cannabis or DMT or any of these theories that people have, they were psychedelic. Like there's just mm-hmm. no deny. Like this is why Terrence McKenna was interested in alchemy. You know, like these guys were heads. They were psychedelic, and they were like, you know, that there's something psychedelic about the Renaissance cultural images that Johan Culliano talks about in Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. Like psychedelic culture. You know, think about how Timothy Leary was so into Giordano Bruno and Timothy Leary thought that he was like the reincarnation of Aleister Crowley and whatever. He put that all in, into psychedelic culture. So did Robert Ann Wilson. So did Terrence McKenna. So did William Burroughs, right? They're all magical thinkers. Right. Imaginal thinking is, I guess it's so, it, in itself, it's kind of an act of rebellion. It's totally the way you think about stuff when you want to be an artist, regardless of what your parents are telling you to do. So then uh, so then, by the time Atlanta Fugians is written, the Hypnorotomachia has already been around for 100, 150 years. What kind of influence do you think its imagery had on Atlanta Fugians? Have you, have you kind of... Um... I can't talk in terms of like a direct influence, okay. but, um, you know, these books are both examples of what was in the air. The, mm-hmm. They're both examples of this emblematic tradition right um the emblematic tradition in, in conjunction with the renaissance theory of love and the renaissance theory of magic um you know so these are these are just examples of magical thinking in visual form in, in the form of this this art form right and uh-huh. in the same way that you know saying that the hypnorotomachia is not it's not philosophy right neither is a talent of fugains it's an art form but they're both expressing ideas from these craft traditions Right. They're both expressing ideas from architecture or from alchemy, it, you know, really help you to understand how like, you know, Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism are these, these amazing fusions of, of the knowledge of craft traditions and ar- architecture and alchemy. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Where, uh, and, and, and of course the art of memory, which I'm about to turn to in a discussion of my research. Right. So, you know, in, in Rosicrucianism, as much as in Freemasonry, we see the way that these, magical forms of knowledge that were bound up with alchemy and architecture can't be abandoned if you're trying to understand um, how to how to create the whole person. Right. So let's look at the art of memory, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm going to turn here, and I've got a quick quotation from an abstract um, by a fellow, Dionysius Rogers, who's working on the Hypnerotomachia. And so, uh, and this also is going to maybe uh, ring a bell with our discussion of Macintosh and Counter Enlightenment, right? So here's mm-hmm. the title of his dissertation: A Renaissance of Memory, Colonna's Hypnerotomachia as Counter Edification. Okay, and so I've cut down this abstract. You can go read the whole thing. Um, all of the stuff that I'm referencing, you can just get for free online. By the way, if you're listening, you want to follow these rabbit holes. The juxtaposition of emblematic and allegorical persons with detailed architectural spaces in Colonna's HP 
represents an independent Renaissance development of magical mnemotechnical literature, that's the art of memory, right? In a book which declares to offer itself things worthy of knowledge and memory. I mean, memory's in the title, come on, right? <laughs> Uh, so then the third chapter of this dissertation reviews some of the overt appeals to the nature and importance of memory in the HP and discusses the relationship between memory and mortality. Um, following some speculation on the significance of the title, Hypnerotomachia, a fourth chapter uses Paranomasia as a route to discussing the magical and mechanical themes in the text and how they relate to the art of memory. Uh, the fifth chapter details the mnemotechnical context and features of the Psychomachia of Prudentius from the 5th century uh, CE in order to provide a background and contrast for the hypnerotomachia. The sixth chapter uh, examines the ways in which memory arts were applied and demonstrated in the composition of the text. Uh, then we have a chapter on the woodcuts and uh, their relevance to the nemotechi. And um, then there's like a chapter on the influence. But uh, so, I mean, obviously this, I know that your readers are very concerned with the art of memory, right? Um, I would hope so. I talk about it all the time. As I am with your, <laughs> with your, your podcast. Yeah. So, um, and so really quickly, you know, a teaser of what's going on, which you can read about in this dissertation in the Hypnerotomachia, is that the nymphs who are leading Polyphilo around have allegorical names taken from the sort of faculties of the mind that are relevant to somebody who wants to understand the kind of Renaissance cognitive science of the art of memory, right? So you've got like, you know, Prudence or, or, or whoever, right? They all have these allegorical names uh, that, that are sort of like, the parts of the mind or the parts of the soul or whatever uh -huh. um so so there's and there's lots of stuff i, I couldn't cite you chapter and verse because i'm not prepared to get into the nuts and bolts of this here but um there's so much stuff that is it makes it clear that the, the art of memory isn't just being suggested by the hypnerotomachia you know but the art of memory is just like explicitly referenced and you're just beaten over the head by it if you understand all of the kind of renaissance context uh, that goes into how people would be approaching this and reading it, right? Mm -hmm. So this is uh, this is some kind of a weird example of the art of memory in magical application. Long story short, right? Right. I can see that. I can see that it it really makes me think of um, you know the the theater of the world um, by oh I can never remember his name, but uh, Giuliano something something who uh, he Camillo? never. Huh? Camillo. Yes. Camillo. Camillo. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's the same sort of thing where it's, uh, it's, it's an object of art that is, uh, like a physical representation of the art of memory. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, uh, like I came across the hypnerotomachia right when I started looking into art of memory stuff and I was just struck right away. I was like, Oh my God, all of these measurements, all of the precision, like the ability to build all this stuff in your head. Like this is a, this is a book that's, that's, that's literally trying to create a memory image in in your soul like it's totally that's that it just seemed like an instruction manual for it and it's it's also kind of like a theory of what happens when we encounter the the architectures right um so it's like it, it's it's a lot of theory that might back up you know like when you're building an architectural palace in your head like what are the rules for how to make it right like what's going to be the most beautiful and, and if you you want to understand like how you're you know how your mind is accessing this thing right like mm -hmm. it's going they're going there's going to be rules for for what is the optimal way to build your memory palace in order to make it accessible right and the, you know there's rules in the classical art of memory for how you want to light the rooms and you want to put things in each room that are going to be memorable that sort of like excite the passions because if you make it 
you know, an emotional experience to look at the thing in the room that's going to make it easier to remember. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, so Culeano emphasizes that when you're going to understand Giordano Bruno's magical images, right, you have to like understand it in that context. Yeah, because there's a lot of background that Bruno's not going to cover because he's not writing books for beginners. So the authorship of Francesco Colonna comes back into this because Colonna is a Dominican, right? And there's this whole tradition of Dominican use of the art of memory for sort of religious purposes, right? Right. For, um, you know, there's, if you want to like pray seriously, you got to get organized. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't know if this is going to be familiar to magical practitioners, but in order to do magic, you have to be pretty organized. You have to be very organized and you have to pray. I think most magical practitioners understand the need for organization. I mean, you know, the traditional shelves full of tiny bottles all labeled with their newt's eyeballs and chicken eyelashes and stuff so uh so that's the uh, basic nugget of of how i um you know got into this thesis um you know which i haven't even kind of crafted a thesis yet but uh, you know both of these books are texts that you play with and this is going to help us situate like the esoteric dimensions of that play within the context of renaissance cultures and mentalities of the time rather than you know, just sort of out of thin air, you know, regarding it as this marvelous, like strange thing, you know, it's, it's not, it's not coming out of nowhere. It's coming out of these cultural contexts. We can situate it, you know, and uh, looking at a text like a talent of food gains and understanding how there's just sort of this general concept of alchemy, alchemical play with emblems, you know, uh, in the air, uh, in the culture of the time to understand the, the kind of emblematic play that is happening in the Hypnerata Machia, which made it so interesting to a thinker like Jan Kuliano, who wrote Eros and Magic in the Renaissance. Yeah. Um, so a couple other things about it that I'll just review really quick. Um, there's another great study called Promoting the Past, the Hypnerata Machia as an Antiquarian Enterprise. Uh-huh. And so in this study, one of the interesting things that's going on is, is thinking about medieval pageant literature. And so this is another way of thinking about space and playing around with space, right? Like the pageant is this art form in which you're moving people around. And uh, we find, and here's another study. This is a, uh, this is a, a web, web link um, to an article on the web. Uh, the first human chess reference, right? We actually have a human, a game of chess played with humans. And when you think about like what's going on with Polyphila, right? He's being pulled around, right? He's, right. Uh, he, He's being pulled around like, you know, almost like a, a character being pulled around a chessboard um, or like a token being pulled around a chessboard, right? Um, but there's actually a literal um, human chess game referred to in Hypnerotomachia, and uh, I'm just going to tease that. I can't get any, any more detail now. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so that's another way we're forced to think about, like, play with space in terms of this architectural thing, right? Like, architecture creates a space in which the pageant can happen, or in which the ritual can happen, right? And also in Hypnerotomachia, what's happening is rituals are being dramatized, right? And he goes right. through these rituals. There's sort of like, you know, a whole lot of erotics going on. There's obviously like a lot of like pagan sort of sensibilities or, you know, like the way that Christians in the Renaissance were encountering and reviving paganism or keeping paganism alive or, or you know, however, reconstructing it, whatever you want to call that, um, you know, we can read a book like Godwin's uh, The Pagan Dream of the Renaissance, mm -hmm. uh, or there's a great book uh, about with Arcadia in the title by Ingrid Rowland, uh, which also talks about the Neuromachia. Uh, 
I say it a hundred times, I'm going to learn how to say this. No, you won't. I, I still haven't. I still, every time I approach the word, I'm sort of like, this is going to go poorly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then I've just found this. Um, so moving on to my to read list, um, there's a study on culinary marvels in HP. Oh. So uh, this study looks at uh, late medieval and early Renaissance feasting practices. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm really thrilled that so much study is happening of the hypnotomachia and that there's so much stuff out there now. Like that really excites me. There's a whole new ginormous pile of reading to get through now. <laughs> oh, so two more things I'll drop really quick. Um, Edward Tuft's Beautiful Evidence. Are you familiar with Edward Tuft? He wrote a book called... Oh, um, yeah, yeah. You I... know, The Representation of Graphical Information or something like that. Right, and right. It's sort of like the classic... He's written four books, and in one of those books, Beautiful Evidence, he, he considers the hypnorotomachia. And so if you're like a typography geek or whatever, if you're interested in the way that things are arranged on the page, the design of the book, um, the way that um, the hypnorotomachia is a you know shining example of Renaissance design, uh, that would be one of the, the best places to go. And so I'm going to be considering that and thinking about the way the design works and the emblems of the Atalanta mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Um, and then a couple of more sort of on the uh, artistic or literary side. Um, there's the book by Marina Warner called Fantastic Metamorphoses, Other Worlds, Ways of Telling the Self that touches on HP. It mm-hmm. looks interesting. And um, and then there's a sort of, uh, I'm not sure if this is an edition of Hypnorotomachia, but there's this guy who's, who's sort of written a book and doing art. Rediscovering Antiquity Through the Dreams of Polyphilus by Esteban Alejandro Cruz. Oh yeah, so, I just downloaded that or saw that title somewhere. I haven't uh, I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, you'll have to send me a link if you've got an e-copy. Um, Is it so, a book? Uh, I think I just saw. I think I just got one of those spammy emails from Academia Edu, so I don't know that I actually opened it. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a paperback. Apparently, I've got a, a okay. web link. I'll, I, that's all I have in my notes right now. So in terms of the Atalanta, I have some, uh, some great stuff to read. Uh, so Playful Humanism and Atalanta Fugians by Donna Bialik, or Bielik, um, who's working on that uh, digital edition project. And then there's, uh, there's this guy, Johan Hassler, who's working on music and, and Renaissance magic. So he, he wrote a text called uh, Performative Multimedia Aspects of Late Renaissance Meditative Alchemy, the case of Michael Myers, Atalanta Fugians. So like, what's the like meditation aspect of this, right? This is obviously something of interest to theorists of esotericism. Like what does it mean that we're meditating on the text, using the text, you know, as a form of meditation, what's the connection with meditation and play? You know, like I feel like one of the things that I've always loved about esoteric systems is that it gives me a way to play around with the faculties of meditation. It gives me all these objects for meditation, gives me all of these symbols for meditating on all of these ways for evaluating the uh, results of the meditation right yeah um so you know the question of playing meditation is a big one and, and so like what's the difference between a learning text and a meditation text what's the uh what's the relevance of learning to meditation in, in an esoteric context you know like uh what is the role that learning and meditation play in your initiation mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing um I mentioned yeah, the, uh, oh, these, these are interesting ideas. I guess uh, in my head, I'm sort of thinking about like, I feel like we, we, we really want to draw lines between uh, meditation and learning now. Like uh, meditation almost has a 
different meaning than it, it might have before uh, probably um, yeah, because the, the Western because it's world's... Just, it's Im- just a therapy for your attention, right? It's yeah. just clinical mindfulness training, right? Like mm-hmm. meditation should only be used, uh, you know, and I've had arguments with people who say, you know, like you shouldn't be tripping out when you meditate. You shouldn't be doing vision quests. Like that's all just a byproduct, right? That's just like things that your brain is going to do. And, you know, Alistair Crowley called them breaks, right? You're going to yeah. have these breaks in your meditation where you might have these amazing visions, but like just cut that off and just be really bored and focus on your breath going in and out or whatever, but, right? Yeah, but you don't need to be bored. I and think is that, that's yeah. this is, is that the, the way that Renaissance thinkers looked at meditating on an image. I don't think so. No, I think that I mean I think you can see it in Bruno. I think you can see it in even older texts like the Asclepius and uh, the Corpus Hermeticum, where you know everything talks about like you want the images in your head to move. You you aren't you aren't staring at something to be bored. You're letting your imagination take these flights of fancy. Like it's part of it's part of our special superpower as human beings. Like we get an imagination and we get to let it do these things. Um, yeah. I mean, as somebody who has had, you know, remarkable experiences of like imaginal visions, mm-hmm. it's impossible for me to read the Corpus Hermeticum and not think that there is some visionary component behind the like composition of this text. Oh, there must I don't be. think that these guys were just pretending to have visions. I don't think that they were just imagining what visions might be like. No. I think that the guys who composed that book, and I think that most of the people who have been involved in the hermetic tradition and all of its, you know, forms and, and uh, revitalizations and reconstructions, a lot of these guys are having visionary experiences. And a lot of this material is grappling with visionary experiences that you can't quite explain using the language of scientism. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so so then you have emailed me kind of a list of notes and maybe some titles uh, of some of these uh, papers that you've mentioned. Yep, and okay, uh, yeah, one one last reference is by Alina Bolzoni in Lux and Tenebris, another of those great uh, mm-hmm. collections, the visual and the symbolic in Western esotericism. Um, the Memory Theater of Giulio Cal- Camillo, Alchemy, Rhetoric, and Deification in the Renaissance. Ah. So here's another place where we can look at, you know, right. the sort of role of alchemy and what is going to become, um, you know, Rosicrucian and Freemasonic initiation, mm-hmm. for example. Okay. Well, I'll make sure the show notes have um, links or at least titles for a bunch of these things so people can go do some research on their own. And then uh, I hope that as your research goes along and as your paper starts to come together, you'll come back on and tell us some more of what you've figured out. Yeah, I'll probably be ready to uh, talk uh, for another hour based on my research uh, before I'm ready to record the uh, talk or or uh, print the article. You know, I didn't yeah. get to give the conference paper. I was going to give the conference paper at Davis. Uh-huh. It was going to be my fourth talk uh, for the Association for the Study of Esotericism, oh. uh, a conference that's put on every five years or so by Alison Kudert, who is a student of Francis Yates and heads the uh, Religious Studies Department over at UC Davis. Oh. Uh, that, that conference is my jam and it got canceled you know oh, i'm sorry whole- that sucks <laughs> so i'm just gonna make sure to produce some product because this is some of the best work that i've done digging into this stuff and figuring it out and making connections and trying to you know think about how to talk about it and situate it and you know uh, explain what we love about this stuff right yeah so, uh, well i really admire the way your brain works and i'm just so thrilled that you're looking into this stuff because I know that I'm going to uh, either uh, love or hate what you come up with, but we will have a good discussion about it either way. 
<laughs> yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to talk. And, yeah. you know, anybody listening to this who wants to get in touch and bounce ideas, I'm, you know, I appreciate any input that people have. I, you know, I might, uh, might I might, uh, you know, start a fight over the interpretation of some historical point, but <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, but but yeah, no, I, I invite you know any any uh, any engagement that people might have on on this material. I just you know, yeah. just love to hear about your experiences with these texts. And the best place to get a hold of you online is Twitter, correct? Yeah, I'm at T3DY at Twitter. Um, you can email me, Ted Hand at uh, Ted.hand at gmail.com. All right. I will make sure that your Twitter uh, link is also in the show notes. And I just want to thank you again for coming on and and sharing all of this incredible information. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing what you come up with. And hopefully... Uh, hopefully all of the Arnimancy listeners are so intrigued now by the Hypnorotomachia polyphily that they've gone out and bought their own copies and they are uh, sitting at home smoking marijuana and reading it while listening to Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's an unavoidable text in this tradition, you know, oh, if absolutely. you're interested in the, yeah. the confluence of art and memory and, uh, you know, the prehistory of, of Freemasonry and, you know, all of these things that we look into, um, it's uh, it's just such an important text. Oh yeah, you no, know, go read Culliano's Eris and Magic in the Renaissance too. That's just it's uh, yeah, that's it, foundational. Like it, it's got to be read. I think at this point. And yeah, and you know, I just uh, I'm happy to see that that more people are getting involved in this stuff. And you know, there's a lot of kind of hardcore um, kind of history of ideas, history of the Renaissance kind of research that we can we can build on. But uh, you know, it's really time to start understanding how this text works as a magical masterpiece of art. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.com.